0: Welcome to the Sure Skills Learn to Grow podcast. My name is Simon Bean. I'm the host, and today I'll be talking to Ed Monk, who is the CEO of the Learning at Performance Institute. In this conversation, we talk about the difference between a training landscape and a learning landscape, why learning has been described as an economic imperative, and perhaps most importantly, whether Ed believes Liverpool will retain the English Premier League this season. As you'll soon hear, Ed is extremely knowledgeable, and he delivers nuggets of wisdom in simple, practical examples, which I really enjoy. I hope you enjoy it too. Here's Ed Monk. Hey, Ed.
1: How's it going? You're going all right? well. How are things? Very good. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you from thousands of miles away. <laughs> <laughs> I believe
0: you're back in the office today.
1: Yeah, one of the first days back in the office, so we're socially distanced, but we're catching up with each other, which is, is nice, actually. Um, I've traveled down from Manchester, it's about a two-hour drive, and uh, it's good to see people. I mean, being the CEO, I'm not so sure that they're pleased to see me, but it's, <laughs> ni- it's nice to see people. They'll pretend. They're good at that, yeah.
0: <laughs> Great stuff. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time today and excited to hear some of your thoughts on the learning landscape and where things are headed. I- I've heard you talk about the fact that we've moved from a training landscape to a learning landscape. How do you define that shift? What-, what is the difference between a training landscape and a learning landscape?
1: Well, obviously, historically, L&D has been training, you know, up until recent years, and it's been very transactional. You know, if you wanted to learn something at work, you would book on a course And you would go to that course maybe a couple of weeks later for three days, one day, half a day, maybe in a country house, maybe in some specific office-based environment within the large organization. And that would be where you would go to learn something. Now, thankfully, we've developed – I remember those days. I've been in L&D 20 years, and we were looking at standards for that kind of delivery around that time, 20 years ago. In fact, the Institute's 25 years old this year. Uh, but now learning is much more motivated and focused around the learner, which is a great thing because we're looking at genuine outcomes. Um, a few years ago, the OPI was really strong on the message of efficacy, so demonstrable impact. And what we meant by that was not just you know, ROI for the company, but for the learner. I think it would be naive to think that learning only happens with somebody else being involved in it anymore that's just not the case so I you know I'm talking to you now we'll share ideas and I'll learn from you but equally after this call's ended I might go online and look up some of the things that you've told me about and I'll learn myself so it can be much more self-motivated now and I think that's been the big challenge actually for learning and development in recent years along with a couple of other things but it's been a huge challenge to be where that is happening you know, to understand where people are actually going to learn with the advent of technology and and be a part of that, you know, play a role in that. Um, it's We're getting there and we're understanding it more, but without question, you know, the speed of technological change <laughs> is uh you know I, I made a commitment to you prior to this call i try and avoid certain phrases i was going to use the the unprecedented word then i was like i'll try and not <laughs> do terrible. that to me. yeah current climate unprecedented those kind <laughs> of things we'll try and avoid but you know it's it's crazy the way technologies are adopted now there's a a slide that i've used in like many presentations that i got from um somebody who i admire speaking actually a lot laurie nels hoffman and she was talking about how different uh, technologies have been adopted and in what time scale over a number of years. So TV taking, I think, 50 years, mobile phone, landline phone, 70 years to get to 50 million users. And Pokemon Go took 36 hours to get to 50 million users. And it's just the best indictment of where we are with kind of technological adoption. So you go to presentations on l and I'm sure like I do, and hear really great speakers And they'll talk about the Uberfication of learning and it's coming to our market. I do the same, you know, Uber to taxis, Airbnb to hotels, Spotify to music. It will happen to L&D. But I actually think L&D is adapting to that. There will be some huge form of technology probably coming very soon that will dominate the market. And there'll be two or three huge vendors and they'll have a huge part of it. But it's a very human activity. And if the the pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us that actually we really relish human interaction. Uh, So I'm not for one minute suggesting that we're going to go back to classroom training being the ultimate panacea here. But human interaction, the human side of technological um, advancement is still a big part of learning and development. Um, So content's great. But the curation of content and that trusted uh, person providing that content to you is different to just content. So if we worked in the same uh, company and you were head of L&D, and you told me that you'll probably like this, Ed, because you're running the whatever team, uh, let's say the marketing function, you might find that useful. I would trust you sending me that. Whereas if I just kind of Google something and stumble across some content, I might not feel the same about it. I think that's pretty, pretty profound actually. And there aren't many industries or professions where the human touch Added to the technology is as important as that.
0: Interesting. It sounds like you're saying that training is something that was done to learners or employees, whereas learning is something, it's a kind of empowering the learner to find their own learning experience, whether that's using technology or, like you're saying, interacting with peers and a kind of democratized approach to learning where. As you said, learning happens all the time and happens everywhere, right? It's not just happening in that ILT that you went to.
1: Yeah, totally. There's countless examples that we use anecdotally. You know, we we run an awards event. When you go to the awards event, every year I have to put a a bow tie on. And every year I can't remember because it's maybe two or three times a year that I'll wear a bow tie. So I go on YouTube and look up how to tie a bow tie and it's there for me. It's a learning asset immediately. So, you know you could when this all kicked off you could quite quickly be thinking well there's no there's no point in lnd anymore because all the answers are on the internet and you know there's a famous quote from charles jennings who was the you know, uh, founder of Seventy Twenty Ten, that accessibility had replaced knowledge retention as power within business and at the time I, you know i think you I, you know i felt he was right as well but i thankfully it hasn't replaced it i think it's totally changed the way we retain knowledge and the way we learn accessibility has but there is this requirement i think for trust and for yeah the the humanity part of learning and development and technological information that's actually becoming more useful Uh, we say the speed of technological change is unprecedented but we've been talking about accelerated change for about a decade (laughs) so you can't keep talking about it and saying you know there must be a finite amount of acceleration there or maybe <laughs> maybe there, maybe there isn't but this period this last sort of 4 or 5 months it's it's been foot on the gas hasn't it i mean it really kind of quick agile responses to requirements from L&D you know in 24 hours they're transforming i had the absolute privilege of talking to dina o'gorman who's a lady who runs uh, an NHS academy, guys in St. Thomas's NHS a hospital based in London. And before the pandemic, they had an l and d massive incident plan, which you know I don't what other L and d function would have a massive incident plan where yeah, we're ready and if anything happens, we go to virtual classroom within six hours and everything carries on being delivered. The wow. business continuity part, yeah, it was it was so impressive. It was incredible that an organization that size was able to mobilize so quickly with zero interruption on the delivery of learning, you know, say delivery of learning, that's a contentious statement, but on learning carrying on happening sure. with people being involved in it. You know, no interruption. That's incredible. So there are organizations definitely, and these are forward-thinking leaders as well, you who know, are kind of pondering the effects of this because actual transformation in most companies has been, paradoxically in terms of comparing it to technological advancement, slow. You know, the way we've adapted as learning leaders has been pretty slow, actually. Mm -hmm. I I delivered a keynote uh, two or three years ago, which was about digital transformation. The whole event was about digital transformation. And it was with a major organization in learning and development, global organization. And they were talking about how we need to be prepared for this. And yet most of their programs that were being run six months ago were still classroom based and yet they were running an event on digital transformation and they you know they've they've been struggling the last few months and they've had to transform straight away so this has been the ultimate test of our ability to be agile and to digitally transform I think and for through that focus on the learner
0: let's stay there for a second so if if digital transformation is kind of moving from one thing to another thing What is it that we're moving from and what is it that we're moving to? If we could put some kind of practical terms around what digital transformation looks like.
1: Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I think it's, um, this is a bit more philosophical. So I I almost apologize for that because we really want to be practical, (laughs) don't we? But um, I genuinely believe that digital transformation offers learning leaders the opportunity to provide learning experiences that, not conform, but that are fulfilling what I'm terming the the three C's. Learning now in 2020 has to be compelling, constructive, and convenient. And it's normally two out of the three that you get when you speak to learning leaders. You don't get all three, so it yeah. might not be it might not be that compelling. So you know we have to market the L and D to get people to come to it. Um, it might not be that constructive. It might not actually be providing impact on the company which is what I'm paid to do, or uh-huh. on the learners. And it, more often than not, it's inconvenient. It's not where I wanted the learning to be. You know, uh-huh. I, if I'm delivering a seminar, hypothetically speaking, you know, I work say I work for a big company and I'm delivering a seminar this afternoon to my teammates and I, my last session that I ran was poor, then I just want to know how to open a good webinar, how, three things that I could do to open a good webinar. I wouldn't book myself on a course to do that because I'm delivering it this afternoon. I would go and find out on YouTube or Google top three things when you're opening a virtual classroom session or webinar. That's convenient. And that's where L&D people really need to be playing now. Uh, it can't be this kind of well, we've built a course around that. I will say it would be an old, the biggest cliche in L&D to say that we're still you know, adding up how many courses we delivered this year as a KPI as to how well we've done. I don't really be- buy that L&D leaders are doing that anymore. I, I honestly believe, we're, pa- I hope so anyway, that we're past that. But actually, we can't really measure the impact of what we're doing if we don't know what the terms of engagement were at the beginning. And I think that's a challenge for L&D leaders. How do I know what I'm going to be measured against for my job? And we we can we can drive that actually. As L&D leaders, we can drive the agenda and go to the CEO and say, what are your targets for this year, both profit-related, but also more kind of deeper, tactical and strategic? What is it that you're trying to achieve? Okay, so if I create an L&D strategy that's going to fulfill those things, and if I can get us to there, there, and there, you will think I've done a good job. Great. Okay, I'll go away and do that. I'm seeing an increasing amount of CLOs be capable of doing that, whereas previously, L and D leaders would maybe report into a CHRO or a head of personnel and not quite be at top table. So they get a kind of second hand request of, you know, what we're really after in this business this year, Ed, is to, you know, really drive targets. We really want to hit those. And it's sort of filtered, you know, diluted as a message. Whereas I want to know if I'm responsible for developing everybody. No, what well, I need to know the detail, you know, <laughs> so that I can know whether I'm doing a good job or not. That bit definitely needs to improve but we are seeing quicker and more kind of scalable improvement across learning leaders than ever before, probably as a result of the pandemic, I would suggest.
0: If it's really important for L&D departments to know how they're going to be measured, what do you think, and I know you're big on data and the importance of data when it comes to, you know, obviously measuring performance um, and measuring success, not just for individuals, but organisationally. How should L&D departments be measured well they should drive
1: how they are measured that's you know it's okay to do that it, it, okay this idea that an LD leader should wait for the annual appraisal from the CEO who's going to say whether you've done well or not based on metrics that were never agreed in the first place and are just arbitrary picked out of the sky how have we got on this year we're doing well yeah develop people good yeah sales team still here we lost one this year that's a shame you know that no other head of department gets that kind of like loose conversation you know it, it's much more scientific if you're in the sales side of things if you're in delivery you know it's there's units there's quantity so i think things that we should be looking at are actually happiness indexes you know go on glassdoor and find out what people are saying about the company that you work for because top of the conversation subjects on glassdoor after remuneration is how I am developed. You know, this is why I left that company because they weren't developing me. Oh, I'm joining this company because it's brilliant. They've given me this opportunity. So go on it and <laughs> find out and then use that as a metric. You can use Net Promoter, obviously, uh-huh. NPS as a score, but also have a look at your retention rates and attraction rates. Are uh-huh. we recruiting better people? Are we not losing good people? And put some science behind it. and I know you say you know we're strong on data. I make no apologies for that because I honestly think that's that's like the critical part of this. If you don't get that bit right at the beginning, you'll always be having these odd philosophical conversations around L and D and whether it worked this year. You know, once a year with your line manager, we we can do better than that, definitely. And we are we are actually we are. And the um, the emphasis on culture that I've seen permeate reports on good companies. In the last four or five months, has meant the L and D has actually been pushed right to the front. That is one of the few good things I think that's come out of this. That we do want to learn, we do want to get better. And in a world where the reskilling is going to be more important than ever, I think Amazon is taking um, factory workers and converting them into data analysts through development programs. That's how we need to operate. You know, we need to be thinking like that. What do we really need as a business? And we talk about the digital transformation of L and D. There's the digital transformation of the businesses that LD functions are in, and they can be a part of that, not waiting for the instructions. You know, the last people to hear about it. So forward-thinking L lead- leaders are using data, and on a practical level, I would encourage people to read uh, works by Kevin Yates, articles by Kevin Yates who works for Facebook. He's really strong on data and has some brilliant practical messages. And again, Lori Niles Hoffman both of whom are eminently capable of demystifying the idea of using data for learning. I think a lot of people feel, I know a lot of people feel, it just sounds like it's gonna be really complicated and and difficult. (laughs) And and so they just avoid it at all costs. And it it isn't, you know, there is data everywhere in your business that you can use to make your L&D better. That is an absolute fact. Whatever the size of the business, there is some data that will make things better that you can use. And then if you get that right and create learning experiences that are based on the data, the measurement will be against what you really want it to be against. And I think that's fair, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I love the example you give of Glassdoor because it's, uh, it's proof of the business value of a learning culture. Mm. Uh, and The impact that that has on you know bringing great people into your company, of keeping them there. And then, you know, when it when it comes to reskilling and upskilling, which is, you know, just so important right now, given that so much has changed and so much will continue to change, it's pretty clear that L and D has a massive business value and, and a big impact on the bottom line of a business. Is that something that you think we still have to advocate for? Or is that something that executives are pretty clear on now that it's 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 well recognized? Or is there still work to be done there?
1: It was described by The Economist a couple of years ago, lifelong learning as an economic imperative. And having yep. been doing this kind of work for over 20 years, that's the first time that I'd heard a statement like that from you know, any kind of media outlet that was worth its salt. So, you know, so L&D people would be saying it, but of course they would you know it's an economic imperative what we do but this was Uh you know an an independent media outlet saying that it's an economic imperative that was a big transition and I think as I've discussed recently with a couple of other people there was another moment in the last year which I think was very profound um which was the bit you're in the states aren't you the business roundtable which is based in the US and they came out of their annual meeting it's an the Business Roundtable is like a network of CEOs, but the major CEOs. So Jeff Bezos is in it, people like that. Yep. And they came out with this statement. I'll see if I can get it right. When they came out of the uh, the annual meeting, it said, we commit to investing in employees, compensating them fairly, providing important benefits, and supporting them through training and education that helps to develop new skills for a rapidly changing world. I mean, that was like we should have that you know, indelibly imprinted on our foreheads. <laughs> and just walk around with that as L and D people, because finally, you know, it's like we'd got there, climbed the mountain, and business was taking us seriously. So, I think, I think that like the the uh, the idea that we're trying to persuade business that we add value, I'm, I'm hoping that we've kind of crossed that bridge a bit. You will, sure. I mean, there's going to be a recession probably in lots of countries on the back of recent events, and. That normally means L&D is cut. And I am seeing, unfortunately, huge amounts of really great people, a huge amount, sorry, of of great people in L&D now become redundant or their roles are redundant and they're available for work. And that's really disheartening because I was interviewed right at the beginning of this the pandemic happening. And I said, the businesses that have a strong culture will retain their investment in L&D and they'll be the people that come out of this well. And I still stand by that. I'm not going to accept that that was wrong. Um, I know we have to kind of look after the bottom line. I'm a CEO. Ultimately, you have to run a business. But getting rid of L&D is short-sighted. So if we hadn't been in this pandemic in the last few months, then I think we would have still seen technological advancement, but not at the same pace. And I think L&D was on this really strong curve of being recognized as adding value. It was attracting great people. Uh, I think it was the number one reason why I hate this word, but why millennials were choosing jobs was because of the opportunity to de- develop in that role rather than mm-hmm. the money, which is a huge difference to you know say when I was eighteen to twenty-one. Mm-hmm. So it, it was happening, you know, it was already happening. But now we've got this opportunity to go look, you know, we we are one of the major players <laughs> at work. We're not you know, we can get rid of those and still carry on. No, you need us because we have to now be reskilling and upskilling people like we never have before. And I think, uh, again, I'll quote um, Heather McGowan wrote an article in Forbes magazine, which has just been my favourite article of the last 12 months. I'll email you the link and then if you want to include that as kind of part of the text with this, then people might find it useful. Um, But she said that the backbone of those companies who've adapted to... Um, the kind of pandemic reacted to it well the backbone of those resilient companies is culture and they've moved from a modality of production to creativity Uh, she actually argues that you know the very survival of a company in this this age depends on a culture that can withstand massive disruption so you know we look back at the kind of Dina O'Gorman in the NHS she was ready for this better than probably anybody had a virtual classroom strategy implemented and like that, everything flicked. But the purpose of the companies who are doing well in this sense goes way beyond the bottom line. That's what's great for humanity. You know, they're looking at corporate social responsibility and their cultures are strong. LVMH, BrewDog, Zoom, these companies just adapting and instead of making perfumes and making hand sanitizer, instead of charging for their software, they realize it's the only way people can communicate. So it's free for a period. That is inspiring and I, I think L and D is coupled in with that type of humane approach. That's what I would. That's what I would argue.
0: Coming back to what you said about convenience, uh, you know, you you were talking about the three C's before, and you you highlighted convenience.
1: Hmm.
0: Technology has obviously played a huge role in making learning more accessible, more convenient, and in the democratization of learning. What piece of technology has had the biggest impact on the learning landscape, in your opinion? Wow. <laughs> Um, I
1: think it would be it would be easy to say that LX the kind of generation of LXP's any LXP has had a huge impact and I think they have. But if I was going to answer the question, you know, one hundred percent honestly, it's not a learning software that's had the biggest impact on learning. It would be Google, uh, YouTube. Without question, the biggest learning organization in the world right now is YouTube. And yet they don't even class themselves as a learning organization. And it's because that's where people are learning. You know, that's actually where it's happening. That's the biggest competitor to an L&D function. So if you can't beat them, join them. Use that content, curate it, get the ones that you trust and bring it into your company and create your own library of trusted content benefits your company and create the content as well so yeah i would um i would definitely actually argue that the more i think about it the more i'm feeling very confident that that would be the number one the number one <laughs> choice i would say and it's democratized in the same way that you were you know uh empathizing with my enthusiasm around Glassdoor because it's a democratized the environment and um, so is youtube well you know with that comes negatives and positives but you can take away the negatives of there being some pretty crap content on there by picking the good stuff, you know, and choosing what you want and putting it in your own version of YouTube. I, I happen to um, coach football for under 15s, right? That's, brilliant. yeah. Oh, it's, you say it's brilliant. I think I've probably knocked <laughs> 10 years off my life. I think doing it, but it's, it's, I so, the seven. Uh, yeah. well, my, my son's actually had a go at me for taking it too seriously. You know, you say you're you're treating it like you're a Premier League coach. Uh, To me, (laughs) me, yeah, I am. To me, I am. But (laughs) to say how seriously I take it and to kind of demonstrate an example of YouTube being important to me, you know, there's a training session every week and there's a game every week. And in the training session, after a while, you know, you're just doing the same thing. Warm up, you know, let's get into twos, kick the ball to each other. And you think this is rubbish. So I went on YouTube and looked up under 15s football coaching and there are, you know, tens of thousands of videos. So you filter and look at the ones that's the most the most viewed. And you've got Barcelona's Academy under-15s coaching sessions. So I've cur- cr- created my own playlist, under-15s coaching playlist. And that's how I'm coaching the kids. They think I'm Jurgen Klopp. You know, they, they <laughs> think this guy is incredible the way he's coaching us. And obviously I'm just appropriating content. But if I just said, don't turn up at the training sessions on Wednesday if you all just watch these videos and then put that into practice on Sunday. I don't think that would have the same impact as me being there, building relationships with them, then building relationships with each other, working as a team, and then putting that into practice at work, in inverted commas, you know, on the pitch on the Sunday. So it's a a really good analogy for the way we should be using L&D. And I think a term will... I, I predict that we'll hear this a lot, right? in the next few months this is the first time i've said this so i i think you'll hear about hybrid learning i don't mean blended i think you'll hear about hybrid learning which will be a combination of people and digital that's what i that's what i think we'll we'll see more than anything as people like we were talking just before we started recording about returning to work Mm -hmm. and how people do want a bit of that and do want to work from home as well that's what you'll see
0: hybrid learning makes me think of something else too then so you hear a lot about AI, right? And, and AI and recommendation engines. And you mentioned LXP's a moment ago. Mm. Recommendation engines could be the kind of marquee feature of an LXP, right? That, that ability of AI to or, or technology to recommend the right content to the right person at the right time. Mm. But and, and coming back to the evolving role of L and D departments, right? So content curation has never looked like this, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. You said you can go on YouTube and find 10,000 videos, but you have to find the ones that work, right? Find the right videos. And you have to find the right videos for the right people. So then you have to know about your people, right? You have to know what skills and capabilities they have. You have to know what skills gaps they have. So the technology is fantastic. But it's the people behind the technology and the L&D departments and their roles, which have evolved massively in recent years, to become, like you said, this hybrid of people and and technology. Is that something that you agree with and that you've seen?
1: Yeah. It's the same message as you know, compelling, constructive, convenient. It has to yep. be all three of those things. And the if there was one message I would give to learning leaders at the moment or even learning professionals, it's, you know, if you want to be able to do this properly listen to your colleagues about where they are learning things and where they want to learn and what their motivation is and listen Mm -hmm. to your company, because those are the two groups of uh, two entities that you effectively need to please. (laughs) They're your customers. and if they think you're doing a great job, then you're doing a great job. And to do that, like we said earlier, you start with data. So that's, that's fine. Listen to them, collect that information, Find out what motivates individuals, what they want to be doing. You can create upskilling journeys, pathways. And then a skill that I think all L&D people need to have now is performance consultancy. So being able to talk to the business in a knowledgeable, informed way about how how L&D can drive performance improvement for the individual and the company. That, I think, is the kind of number one skill that an L&D person needs to have at the moment from an existentialist point of view. And then the trends that we'll see in terms of kind of what that will mean for L&D in this new kind of hybrid world, yes, you will need to map the skills of the workforce. And it's not, there's no shortcutting it. There's no way, you know, we could just use a piece of software and do it in a day. It will take a long time, but in the end, it will be incredibly uh, efficient and you'll be doing your job better, mapping the skills for the workforce. I think you'll see capability academies replace what we said right at the start of this, that kind of ILT stuff will disappear, and you'll have capability academies, in-depth training initiatives that will like develop and sustain skills in the company instead of ad hoc approaches to talent building. And then obviously, people learn from each other. So once you kind of set these things in motion, you need communities of practice so that people are helping each other out. And best example is in the software world where, you know, standards are developed and changed really quickly by consensus. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what needs to happen in, you know, micro teams within companies. And L&D can really drive that behavior. And I think this is going to happen sooner than we think. You know, the, if it isn't already happening, actually. The, the, the final thing I would say is you will see in big companies internal talent marketplaces. So people will be kind of, you know, dynamically moving into other projects because of their expertise there. And it will be based on skills rather than we recruited you to do this named role. And that's your JD. That'll go out of the window. It will be, can you work on this? You're going to be part of this team for the next six months. We're building this. For some, that will be invigorating and exciting. For some, I think it will be it will cause a lot of anxiety and, you know, lack of security in the job. But you'll see more social mobility as a result of that, I think, within companies and from company to company.
0: It almost sounds like the gig economy within enterprises. That's
1: exactly what I would say. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, the gig economy, a micro gig economy within a company. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very cool. So the shifts are are definitely happening. And transformation, I think, can be daunting uh, for companies, especially who have done things in a very traditional manner from an L&D perspective, like we talked about ILTs and, and even e-learning to a certain extent. Let's say I'm a, uh, an L&D leader and my company has always done things in a super traditional manner from an L&D perspective. If I want to take, a, take steps to, to transform digitally and also to build a productive and positive learning culture in my environment, what are some of the practical steps that you would advise me to take? uh i would set up a
1: meeting with the highest level person you can in the company first of all to understand what the purpose of the company is and ultimately how you're supposed to add value and then i would talk uh, talk in inverted commas you know if if there are thousands of people you can't do that but find a way to glean information from every single person that works there and that might be a survey Um, It might be attending, you know, different webinars, but you ask them where they go to learn about how to do their job better. What are their ambitions? What do they want to be doing next? How do they measure their own performance? How do they think they're doing a good job? Mm -hmm. And you speak to team leaders about how they're measuring their people as well. All of that information goes into your system, you know, your, your own system that you're creating and building to be able to design effective learning experiences and I'm saying that as a really loose term that might mean that you think right what we've got to do now is go out and buy an LXP because people want uh, immediately accessible content um, that they trust so we're going to get an LXP and I'm going to populate that with content and curate content in I and my team will populate it with content some things will go wrong Dave you just did that some rules here are you need to have content in there that's user-generated. So whoever's the greatest at sales, get them on video as much as possible, talking about how they do that job well, because yeah. they might leave and you'll have that content. So user-generated content is always better than, you know, an L&D person saying how to sell when they've never sold in their life. You know, yeah. get get the person who's good at it to talk about how they do it. Um, video is obviously more attractive than written content so uh, try and source as much video content as possible and then regularly monitor utilization stats which does popular um the skills mapping bit would also be a part of that because if you don't know what people have and don't have then you don't know what you're supposed to be improving so if you if you find out the purpose of the company and the roles that are required to do that and to make it successful, and then you look at the skills of the individuals, that's your training plan. You know, we're kind of, I'm, I'm being hypocritical calling it a training plan, but that's like the learning plan for the company. And then you have to build something. But it, one has to be really careful to avoid the, the hysteria around buying an LXP being the solution in isolation. That I would urge people to think about if there's one question that we get asked at the lpi all the time from learning leaders it's okay so we bought this lxp and uh, nobody's really using it would you come in and help us you know get people to use it and some of the i can't name any companies obviously but some of these companies are global companies yep and they might have 20 plus lxps that they've bought and and it amazes me you know who is signing off 20 second lxp in that company thinking no this one will do it this is the one it it must be a bigger problem so think first about what is it that we're buying this for will people use it can i take them away from youtube and to this platform because they trust this content better um have we got the capacity to populate this with content can I create a really strong employee engagement strategy where people buy into putting content on here? Some companies have really done this well. AXA have done it incredibly well. They've created an amazing learning culture. And uh, I think it was around that kind of uh, the Olymp- an Olympics approach was competitive. And that wouldn't work in other industries, but for, for them it did. So, you, mm-hmm. you know, you have to find that kind of nugget that is – right rightly in tune with the way your company works and every company is different that makes people think yeah no i'm going to use it i you know i've been on there today it's brilliant that's that's the difficult bit i think actually that's not a kind of one hour of brainstorming in a think tank room to come up with that that's you've got to talk to as many people as possible to understand what they're doing on a daily basis what their motivations are and then you you find what works
0: okay last question who will win the Premier League this season?
1: <laughs> well, I hope it's Liverpool because I'm a big Liverpool fan. Uh, my okay. son and I are big Liverpool fans, but I don't know. Money talks, doesn't it? So uh, <laughs> probably City, I think. they've. We haven't bought many players, but I hope it's Liverpool. There's a brilliant podcast, actually, about Jurgen Klopp, who's a very inspirational leader on Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. If you get a chance um, and if any of the listeners get a chance to hear that, He talks about his kind of four pillars of leadership. And uh, one of them is relentless inclusivity, which I really like. Nobody is ever left out. And on his first day, I think he got everybody that worked for Liverpool. Everybody, you know, cleaners, chefs and the team. And they all met and they spent the day with each other. So they knew who each other was. And I just think that's absolutely fantastic he's a real leader isn't he and that people will run through walls for him regardless of who you support i think he, he manages to kind of cross boundaries in terms of you know team loyalty everybody likes him
0: that's great listen ed i don't want to take any more of your time i just want to say thank you so much for uh, all of your leadership and all of the uh the great things you're doing and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today Ah, yeah,
1: that's that's very kind of you it's been a pleasure actually uh, if only more afternoons were like this thanks simon <laughs>
0: thanks Ed that was Ed Monk thank you for taking the time to listen and thanks again to Ed for joining me I've added all the relevant links in the show notes including where to find Ed and how to find out more about SureSkills. skills take care stay safe and all the best